Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What could be Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome to a very special episode of Cage Rage, a Nicholas Cage podcast. It's the podcast in which you and I and all of us in this new year, the year of our Lord 2024, continue on the journey to true Cage Nirvana. And what is true Cage Nirvana, I hear you ask? Well, it's only the most special, exciting, sexual, ethereal, phantasmagorical, majestical, supercalifragilistic, expedadidocial form of being that one can ever achieve. And it is only achieved, of course, by watching every single movie the man I call the golden hog of Hollywood, Nicolas Cage, has ever been in. Now, while we wait on the home release of Dream Scenario, don't worry, the episode is coming. Didn't forget, I never do. We've got something a little bit different in store for you this week, as I am joined by writer, author, an all-round good egg, Zach Schoenfeld, the author of How Coppola Became Cage. And Zach has written quite possibly the definitive text on Nicolas Cage's early years and gets into the nitty and indeed the gritty of all things Cage, how Cage became the man we know and love today. And we're covering a lot of ground in this conversation. We're talking about the memification of Nicolas Cage, his difficult relationships with both of his parents, and if they still affect his work to this day, and what we think are perhaps the most important roles of the early years of Cage, amongst many, many other things as well. You know, I'd like to think of myself as something, humbly, something of a Cage scholar, but I I pale in comparison to uh, the vast knowledge, the expertise, the work that Zach has put into making this book. Um, so full disclosure, I was sent a digital copy ahead of time, ahead of this interview, um, and I'm not being paid to say this, this is not an advertisement, not a paid advertisement, there's no gun to my head. It's a fantastic book, it's uh, so well researched, it's very humorous throughout, it um, offers so many insights and things that even I, of all people, did not know about Nicolas Cage, that has made me look at him and a lot of his early works in a brand new light as well. It's a very exciting book, um, and one that I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend picking up as well. Now the book is already out, in the old US of A, and it releases in the UK on the 30th of January 2024. It is available in all the usual places where you get your books. Um, links in the description below. And if you have the option, if you have the opportunity, do go support your local bookstores as well. Help keep them going. My times are hard. Uh, but that aside, let's get into it. How Copa Became Cage with Zach Schoenfeld. So enjoy it. And I'll see you on the other side. So, so this week 
we're doing things a little bit differently as I am joined by editor, writer, and author of How Coppola Became Cage, Zach Schoenfeld, the most important book, some would say, since the Bible. Um, Zach, pleasure to have you on board, and how are you doing today? It's a pleasure to, to be here. I'm, I'm doing very well. Amazing, fantastic stuff. So, um, obviously, you know, I don't want to start things on too high a pedestal comparing your book to the Bible. In many ways, it's now my Bible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and as we were saying off record, it is... Um, and after finishing reading the book myself, uh, very kindly provided by your good self um, and your people, it's uh, a fantastic read, very insightful, so in-depth, uh, an incredible insight into, as the title says, how Coppola became Cage. Um, and I feel like <clears throat> I've got to kick things off by asking, you know, how did this interest in Nicholas cage begin um you know to the point where you're writing a book on the man yeah um well i first became a fan of nicholas cage in 2004 when i was i was 14 and my mom took me and my brother to see national treasure at the cinema um and i was a history buff and you know, I was at the, I think I was the perfect age for that movie because I was right <laughs> at the age where I was able to suspend disbelief and, and genuinely believe, you know, maybe there is a treasure map on the back of the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> um, and Cage, you know, Cage sells it. You know, Cage is so good at portraying these obsessive, intense characters who go on these wild quests in, in search of some sort of redemption or treasure. Um I, you know, when I was in high school, I started exploring his work a little, his, you know, I started exploring his earlier work. I watched Raising Arizona. Um, I watched Peggy Sue Got Married. Um, when I was in college, we had an on-campus movie theater where they would uh, frequently show, you know, cult movies and, and old movies, and they showed Face Off. And that was my first time seeing Face Off in a Amazing. in a crowd in a crowd of stoned college students, which I think is the <laughs> ideal setting in which to view Face Off. Um, yes. Yeah. So I just the more the more Cage performances I watched, the more fascinated I became by the man and by you know how versatile he is as an actor, how intense, how he commits to every single performance. Um, I would say that. I my obsession really deepened when I had the opportunity to interview Cage. When I was working at Newsweek as a journalist back in 2015, um, Cage was promoting a pretty one of many mediocre, long forgotten movies that he was pumping out during that era of his career. Uh, this one was Pay the Ghost, um, but I the I had the opportunity to, to interview him for a Newsweek feature, um, and. We had a 15-minute conversation that covered a lot of ground, I would say. We we talked about um, The Wicker Man. We talked about his newer movies. We talked about all the, the memes that were proliferating on the internet during that era. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, both bef while I was preparing for that interview and also after the interview, I 
went deeper into his filmography than I'd ever gone before. And I, I watched some some of his lesser talked about films, but you know, some of the really great ones like Bringing Out the Dead and um, Matchstick Men and um, Birdie, all like incredible performances that I had just skipped over because I think those films don't get as much attention as, as some of his bigger movies. Um, sure. And around it was around that time that I read Lindsay Gibbs' book, National Treasure, Nicolas Cage, which also sent me down the rabbit hole of learning more and more about Cage. And, um, you know, the more I learned about him, the more fascinated I became by his unparalleled, unorthodox career trajectory, um, as well as just the stories of um, how how far can one man go for a film performance? How far can this yeah. man go for a film performance? I think that's part of what interests me about Cage is that, you know, people hear these legends about him, you know, people hear a rumor that he had his teeth pulled for his performance in Birdie, which is not entirely true. It's been exaggerated. I delve into that in my book. And then there's a story of, of how he ate a live cockroach in Vampire's Kiss, which is, it is completely true that he did that. Um, mm-hmm. So it, for me, it was a gradual, a gradual interest in Cage that deepened over the years. But the real impetus for the book was this article that I wrote about Vampire's Kiss. Um, Around the, you know, I th- I would say that when I watched Vampire's Kiss, that became my favorite Cage performance. I think um, the intensity and the darkness of that performance really spoke to me. You know, mm-hmm. the, the way the way that he is completely um, subverting conventional ideas of what constitutes a great film performance. He's he's you know completely rejecting modern realism and he's channeling silent film acting and German expressionism and, and pure camp in that performance. That was something that really fascinated me. Um, So when the 30th anniversary of vampires kiss came around in 2019, I did a piece for the ringer, um, which sort of, uh, was an attempt to write the definitive history of Vampire's Kiss. How did this movie get made? How did Cage get involved in this movie? And, you know, what is it about his performance that people misunderstand? Because I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people have misunderstood that film to be some sort of joke or meme. And in my opinion, it's a lot more than that. And um, for this piece, I tracked down the producers, the director, the screenwriter, the cinematographer, a lot of people who were directly involved in the making of Vampire's Kiss. And I interviewed them at great length and wrote this like 5,000 word history of Vampire's Kiss. Um, and there was so much, there was so much about that movie that I didn't know before embarking on that story. And that I did, I don't think any fans of the movie really knew, um, uh, you know, about how there's, there's a misconception that, Cage just went rogue and that everything he did in that movie yeah. was against the wishes of his director. And the reality is that it, he, you know, everything was worked out and everything had a rational, a creative rationalization to it. He was really drawing on some of the silent films that he had grown up watching because his father, August Coppola was a huge fan of German expressionist filmmaking and Cage wanted to 
bring that style of acting, you know, that surrealistic heightened style of acting into a modern, you know, 80s cinema framework, which is something that, you know, at the time people didn't understand what the hell he was doing. But when you watch it now, you you can you can understand that he's directly referencing, you know, Max Schreck's performance in Nosferatu, for instance. Yeah. Um, so that so that the research that I did into Vampire's Kiss directly fed into the idea, the concept for this book. And it also my experience of writing that piece introduced me to the producer of Vampire's Kiss, Barbara Zitwer, who um, she was so devastated by the the commercial flop of Vampire's Kiss that she ended up leaving the film industry and becoming a literary agent. And um, after that piece published, she agreed. She basically said, you know, you should write a whole book about Nicolas Cage. I will be your agent. I will represent you. Um, and now she's my agent. And I wrote a whole book about Nicolas Cage. So that's, <laughs> that was a bit of kismet that directly led into me writing, writing, hatching the idea and, and writing this book, which is now coming out four and a half years later. <laughs> and what a sort of fantastic, uh, you know, story is there to go uh, from a viewer of Vampire's Kiss to being, in many ways, the definitive historian of Vampire's Kiss. Um, I believe that article you you put with the ring was one I'd read a few years ago. I was like, this is a sensational article. I wish I um, had the any kind of brain skill to go as deep as you did. Um, and it's a fantastic piece that you expand on in the book as well. Yeah. I think part, well, I think, you know, one thing I learned while reporting that piece about Vampire's Kiss is that pretty virtually everybody in the industry who's worked with Nicolas Cage, especially during these formative years of his career, everyone has a story about how how far he takes it, how eccentric and intense he is and, and his mm-hmm. his unusual methods in that he goes to to try to um achieve the the most unusual and intense performance he can possibly achieve um yeah you know for instance there was one there's one story from that vampire's kiss piece that i love and it's a story about how in the scene where the bat flies into his character's apartment cage was very upset that the producers were using a mechanical bat and he was insistent <laughs> yeah. that it needed to be a real bat. And, yeah. um, and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't trying to be a diva. He wasn't trying to be a jerk. He just believed that his performance would be more authentic if there was a real bat, you know, attacking him. And so <laughs> he got into this long protracted argument with the producers of vampires kiss. He was like, we need a real bat. And they said, you, we can't use a real bat. Like it's dangerous. You could get rabies. You could die. You know, you, you, you can't use a bat in a movie. It's just not, it's not safe. And Cage was so determined that at one point he sent his assistant to Central Park with a broomstick with instructions to capture a bat, which is it's <laughs> ludicrous. It's crazy. But, you know, I, I realized that everyone who works with Cage has a story about how how far he's willing to take it for the sake of a great performance. And so I think I wanted to channel that that spirit into this book where, you know, I, yeah. I interviewed over 100 people who worked with him for this book. Um, 
and everyone has an interesting story about Cage. And a lot, a lot of these stories that that I incorporate into the book have have never really been published before. And um, so I, I just felt like there was this whole goldmine of material about Cage's early years and, and about some of the eccentric techniques that he channeled into these performances and mm-hmm. um, some of the um, stories behind creative decisions that a lot of viewers were puzzled by at the time. Um, some of these stories have never been told before. And I would, that was kind of something I was also fascinated with the book. You are speaking with people ranging from uh, his own brother, Christopher Copler, to uh, sort of hairstylists that worked on various f- films as well. And like you said, there is a story um, anywhere you look and a load of interesting details that, you know, I was never aware of. I, you know, I've dedicated a podcast to the man because one, I am insane. And two, I do genuinely <laughs> love Nicolas Cage. And yes, it comes tempting. through for sure in your podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Compliment taken. Um, But something I was very curious, you know, on that point of the range of people, there's a massive amount of people um, who you've interviewed here, who have worked and interacted with Cage across the years. Um, What was sort of your process there in terms of how you were selecting people uh, to interview? And, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, Cage did decline to speak with you about the book as well. But was there also anyone who you felt was um, sort of critical in terms of speaking to as well to get a broader understanding of the man? Yeah. um, My, I worked on the book for about three, three and a half years, which is obviously quite a long time. So I, I use that time to speak to as many people as I could. Any, anyone who was willing to get on the phone with me who worked mm-hmm. with Nicolas Cage, I, I would dial them up and ask them, you know, what was it like to work with Cage? Tell me your best story. Tell me your impressions of him. Um, and everyone had a story. Um, I really began the book in earnest in in the middle of lockdown in 2020. Um, that was when I signed the contract with Oxford University Press and um really uh, got started on the book proper. And on one time, you know, on one hand, that was quite a difficult time. I was, you know, the world felt like it was ending. COVID was everywhere. It was a a very Mm -hmm. difficult time. But on the other hand, um, I think I was able to use that to my advantage a little bit because Hollywood film production was shut down. Everyone Everyone was at home. A, a lot of actors and directors were stuck in their homes. Um, so people had time to take my call. People had a lot of free time to just do interviews and, and talk. Um, and I interviewed everybody who I could. I prioritized speaking to directors and producers who worked with Cage during these formative years of his career. And I was very, mm-hmm. I was very pleased with the range and the number of filmmakers who I was able to interview for this book Um, from, you know, directors who worked with him very early on, like Amy Heckerling, who directed Fast Times, uh, Martha Coolidge, who directed him and Valley Girl. She kind of gave him his first starring role Um, up to David Lynch. It was fascinating to talk to David Lynch. David Lynch had a lot of fascinating things to say about working with Cage in Wild at Heart. Um, 
I spoke to Richard Benjamin, who directed him in in, uh, Racing with the Moon. Um, John Patrick Shanley, who did not direct, but wrote the screenplay for Moonstruck. He, He had some really great things to say about how Cage's Cage, well, in his view, Cage was the only man who could play Ronnie Camarmeri in Moonstruck because he, of all yeah. the actors who auditioned for Moonstruck, he was the only one who could deliver the two sides of Ronnie Camarmeri, both the anger and the romance. Cage was able to channel both of those aspects of the character. Um, and then, as you mentioned, I spoke with uh, Christopher Coppola, Cage's own brother, who. Um, who directed the film Deadfall and who has a lot of bad feelings about Deadfall, even 30 years later. So that was kind of a fraught interview because um, it feels like Christopher Coppola has never really made his peace with Deadfall. Um, The movie very much wasn't what he wanted. He was very frustrated with his brother's performance and, you know, his, his brother kind of, his, you know, his brother gave a very chaotic, unhinged performance, and um, oh, Christopher yes. Christopher felt like he didn't have any control over the performance in that film. And there's, you know, there's a lot of drama and tension in the Coppola family. Some of it stemming from that movie, in fact. Some of it stemming from, you know, the the negativity around that that film and the bitterness that Christopher I think still has stemming from um, his brother's kind of absurdist over the top performance in Deadfall. Yeah. Deadfall is um, a movie I am abundantly familiar with. And I've, I've made a bold claim on podcasts before that maybe I've seen Deadfall more than any other person uh, on, <laughs> on the planet. Um, you, um it's sort of pondered in your book as well you say um if the outlandish performance does it ruin the film does it rescue it and sort of the debate that lies with deadfall as well um and obviously in his filmography it's one that's very easy to pen up there with your vampires kisses and your wicker man's as the cagiest of cage performances um with a film like deadpool um deadfall even um which is for the first half with Cage, batshit insane. And it's a movie I've jokingly described in another podcast as both a one and five star movie. And I will not elaborate on that further. Um, <laughs> where where do you stand on Cage's performance as, um, as Eddie in Deadfall? Yeah, it's, I mean, I think that from a Cage fan's perspective, his performance makes that movie so much more fun than it would be without him. Yeah. I mean, his, his I, in the book, I describe his performance as being almost like a highlight reel for Cage's insanity as an actor. I mean, it's like he's showing off every <laughs> accent he can do, every uh, drug he can snore, every expletive <laughs> he can possibly shout. Um yeah, the the scene where he is stalking through the strip club and he's screaming "fuck!" <laughs> no other no other actor could could pull that off and and no, no. make it make it compelling. Um, so his his performance is a lot of fun, but is it 
is it consistent and believable within the dramatic context of this movie? I'm not sure. I mean, the movie itself yeah. is, is a mess. Um, the it's the the tone of the movie is wildly inconsistent. The, the story is 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 sort of incoherent. Um, and Cage's character dies a gruesome death. Spoiler warning, his character dies one of the most <laughs> gruesome on-screen deaths that Cage has ever died. Uh, yeah. midway, through, midway through the film and after his character's death, I mean, the film loses a lot of juice. I mean, the, the, sec- the latter half of the film suffers due to Cage's accent. Uh, sorry, his absence. Um, and so, I mean, I think Cage is what makes the movie fun. But also I sympathize with Christopher Coppola's perspective. I mean, there's there's a quote that I have. Christopher told me, now the only reason why I would care to look at the movie is because of his over-the-top performance. And he's good at that. It's fun. I think he did that better in Vampire's Kiss, but he just was out of control. I felt bad for James Coburn. He's screaming in, in, he's screaming in James Coburn's freaking face. That's James Coburn. Who the hell are you to be screaming in his freaking face? So that's that's a quote from Christopher, Cage's own brother. Um, and I mean, I think I sympathize a lot with Christopher Coppola's perspective because I think, you know, he was an up-and-coming director at the time. This was his opportunity to work with bigger stars and a bigger budget than he had previously had the opportunity to work with. Mm-hmm. Um and Cage, you know, from his perspective, Cage just kind of made a joke out of the film and made it all about himself. And that was that was very, very disheartening for, for Christopher. And it's part of the reason why these two brothers have had a fraught relationship in the 30 years since then. Yeah, it was very um, eye-opening to read into Christopher's perspective of Deadfall um, and how very much, as you said, it still really sort of affects him to this day as well and as you mentioned there's still some tension stemming from this movie with the rest of the Coppola family um, and something you get quite into which I feel is still quite relevant to Cage's performance to this day um, is his often difficult relationship with his father August Coppola a professor of literature um, it's one he's mentioned even as recently in interviews for something like Renfield that he's trying to channel his father with sort of the way the character is portrayed, the uh, the voice that he uses for that character as well. Um, it definitely seemed to affect his formative years as you touch on in the book. And as as with you having that in-depth perspective of his, his his early years growing up and his first movies as well, um, I'm curious, like, to what extent do you feel that this uh, relationship with his father had on him then that he's carried throughout these you know 40 years of being in movies as well his father had a profound impact on him um so you know his his father was a literature professor um at cal state in california um and he his father august coppola was a truly eccentric man i mean i i knew I knew a bit about his father going into the process of writing this book, but I, I didn't know mm-hmm. that much. And and this was a man who um, introduced 
Cage to films like Nosferatu and The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari when he was very young. I mean, he, he, Cage talks about how his, fr- you know, other dads were showing their kids Disney movies and his dad was showing him Fellini. Um, so <laughs> yeah. his his father was um, a, obsessed with European art films and weaned Cage on a steady diet of literature and European art films which had a profound impact on young Nicholas. And, um, you know, I mentioned that he is channeling Nosferatu in Vampire's Kiss. He's referencing the film Metropolis in a pivotal scene in Moonstruck. A lot of, a lot of yeah. those references that Cage was bringing to his formative performances were because of movies that his dad has shown, had shown him when he was a child. Um, so his, his father was a true eccentric, um, I didn't, one thing I didn't know is that his father, um, his father had aspirations to be a great novelist and these aspirations were largely unfulfilled, but he did publish one erotic romance novel in 1978 when Cage would have been in high school at the time. And his father, August Coppola, published an erotic novel called The Intimacy, which, um, one of the strangest novels I've ever come across. It is, it's about these two characters who are exploring eroticism and sexuality and total darkness. And um, August Coppola had a fascination with touch and with just like the idea of um, living in total darkness and, and experiencing the world through touch. Um, he mm. was very involved in, establishing um what was it called some some sort of like exploratorium in san francisco where you you walk around in darkness and you experience your surroundings through touch um and so he channeled these obsessions into this novel that he wrote the intimacy i i managed to procure a copy of the novel off of ebay it's long out of print um it's it's i will tell you it's one of the most filthy novels I've ever come across. And I, I say that with great admiration, but it is, it is truly a filthy novel um, with, you know, incredibly um, intense, intensely detailed sex scenes. Um, so August Coppola, very strange man. Um, this is the man who raised Nicolas Cage. Um, I cannot imagine it being any other way. Can you imagine Nick having like, normal suburban parents i cannot imagine that um no no no. so there's a contradiction here you know on one hand cage was you know on one hand cage's father had a profound impact on him on the other hand his father was very emotionally cold um there's a story in the book about how cage's father was at one point convinced that Cage wasn't his son and that his mom had an affair with someone else, possibly Robert Mitchum. Um, And his father treated him very coldly as a result of this belief that Cage was someone else's son. And um, if you, you know, I'm not a genealogist, but if you look at a photograph of Cage standing next to his father, there's no doubt that that's father and son. You know, they have (laughs) the same eyebrows, the same face. Um, But Cage's father was very resentful of the fact that, you know, his after Francis, of course, became a world-class filmmaker after The Godfather came out. um, August Coppola was, was quite resentful of the fact that like the whole Coppola family 
went into Hollywood and became known for Hollywood. And um, I think August felt eclipsed by his brother's success and fame. And so he, he resented the fact that Nicholas wanted to be an actor as well. And he, he, he very much wanted Nicholas to be a writer or an academic instead. And he disapproved Mm -hmm. of his son's, um, his son's career aspirations. And so there was a lot of tension between young Nicholas and his father for this reason. Yeah. And it's like I say, it's, it's a lot of depth you go into, which it kind of resounds throughout the book that a lot of the choices he'd sort of go on to make all sort of come from this uh, relationship with his father. And like I said, it definitely still feels like it has an effect on him today. Um, In the book as well, you know, sort of linking on from this um, sort of family drama that sort of continued, especially in those formative years. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, uh, fellow author and fellow cage expert Lindsay Gibb in her book um, gives her thoughts on what she describes as the duality of cage, especially in reference to, um, as quoted, the Jekyll and Hyde divide between his stage name and his birth name. Um, especially in those early years um and as noted in the book others sort of bring up his the coppola name and there was this fear of uh, bullying because of it or the coppola name overshadowing him um do you suppose he would have been where he is today you know had he not been born into let's be honest movie royalty here we talk about what could have happened if if he was anyone else other than August Coppola raising Nicolas Cage, but do you think he still would have um, made it to where he is today? And do you think if he hadn't have been bullied about the Coppola name, um, it would have been a less significant, dare I say, driving force in that part of his life as well? Yeah. um, It's hard to imagine. You know, I, I think he would have, I think he would have made it, regardless of the Coppola, the Coppola legacy. Um, Because I mean, learning about learning about what Cage was like when he was a young actor. I mean, this is, this is an actor who was so determined to be in movies, so determined to, to be an actor that I think he would have clawed through hell in order to achieve what he's achieved. But um, Mm -hmm. certainly being born into the Coppola family gave him gave him an up close uh, connection to Hollywood, Hollywood royalty. Um, It's, you know, it's interesting because there's such a conflict here because on one hand, Cage early in his career, he had such a deep resentment of having to carry this Coppola albatross around with him. He was so frustrated that when he, he, when he would audition for different movies, you know, all casting directors wanted to talk about was his uncle. And, you know, he, yeah. he felt like he was defined by his uncle's name instead of his, instead of his own accomplishments. You know, he just felt pigeonholed by his uncle's accomplishments. Um, and when he did Fast Times at Richmond High, which that was the first and only movie that he did under the name Nicholas Coppola, um, he was very uh, he was very frustrated when his fellow actors on that set teased him for being a Coppola. And um, the story that he's told is that people would congregate outside of his his trailer and they would quote Apocalypse Now and they would say, "I love the smell of Nicholas in the morning." 
Um, and he was, <laughs> he was, he was very pissed off. Um, he was, he sure. just, he felt like he could not escape his uncle's shadow. Um, and that was, that was kind of the formative experience that, that, um, incentivized him to change his name to Cage because he, he felt like he needed to change his name in order to establish his own identity apart from his famous uncle. Um, so on one hand, he had this deep resentment for being trapped inside of his uncle's shadow. But then on the other hand, he clearly benefited from his mm-hmm. his connection to Francis Ford Coppola because he, you know, his earliest roles, three of his earliest roles were in Coppola's movies. You know, one of his very first roles was in Rumblefish, which he happily, you know, accepted, obviously appearing in Rumblefish was a major boost for him very early in his career. Then he appeared in the cotton club. Um, and then he had a starring role in Peggy Sue got married. So it's like on one hand, he wanted to distance himself from Francis Ford Coppola and he didn't want people to know that he was Francis's nephew. But then on the other hand, he appeared in three of Francis's movies in in quick succession. So obviously he benefited from his, his connection to Francis Ford Coppola. Um, but it's like, he was so determined to separate himself from his uncle that he kind of lashed out by misbehaving um, on the sets of his uncle's films, particularly yeah. the cotton club. Um, you know, he was an absolute nightmare to work with on the cotton club. Um, and part of that, I think part of that misbehavior certainly stemmed from his fixation with method acting, you know, his desire to, um, channel the method acting stunts of his icons like Pacino and De Niro. But I think that, I think the way that he behaved in the cotton club also probably stemmed from his, uh, his frustration with being reduced to Francis Ford Coppola's nephew and his, his desire to set himself apart from that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Like I say, in the book, he talked about, you know, the formative years and how, it's almost like he was going through the phase of being a rebellious teenager in some senses, going through these movies, sort of both biting and not biting the hand that feeds him, sort of having this internal battle of, um, you know, very apropos sort of Coppola versus uh, Cage as well. And all this while um, being sort of, you know, as you said, brought into castings because of Coppola. uh, And he also you know, sort of finds himself being cast in a lot of uh, movies where he is very much kind of a heartthrob in many ways. There was quite like a romantic era of these early films as well. And um, especially watching something like Valley Girl now, sort of 40 years on. um, I remember the first time I saw Valley Girl, I was, you know, being used to Cage in sort of later movies and how he appears now as an older person, because that's how time works. Uh, but seeing him as a heartthrob, I was kind of like, yeah, he is a good-looking guy. Um, yeah, and he's sexy, yeah. I think yeah. perhaps it, Valley Girl, it's crazy to see him so young and so innocent because, you know, he wasn't a child actor. He he wasn't in movies before he turned 18. And he I think he was 18 years old when he filmed Valley Girl. And he's able to channel this, like, puppy dog romantic you know romantic uh hunky hunky type of sexuality in that movie which was certainly 
um, compelling in the context of the film, compelling um, in the context of um, the movies of the early 80s. And, you know, Valley Girl was a formative high school movie. It preceded, you know, John Hughes movies by a few years. Um, And Cage was able to deliver that kind of sexuality. But what's, what's interesting is the way that he rebelled against that kind of movie, the way that he... You know, he he did the high school romance thing in Valley Girl, and he later on, you know, a few years later, obviously he did the the smoldering rom com sexy sexy uh, performance in Moonstruck. Um, mm-hmm. But he really did not like being thought of as a hunk or as like a, a a sex symbol. You know, he 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 really felt this need to set himself apart from those kinds of movies. Uh, Moonstruck in particular, he, he didn't want to do Moonstruck. His agent kind of had to talk him into doing Moonstruck because he felt like the movie was, it was, it was too bright. It was, it was too romantic. He wanted to be in movies like Vampire's Kiss and Wild at Heart. You know, he, he talks about how he didn't want to be seen like romancing Cher in, in a mainstream <laughs> romantic comedy. He wanted to, yeah. instead he wanted to be much more punk rock and much darker. And he, um, he kind of did vampires kiss immediately after Moonstruck as a way of directly rebelling against the, the brightness and the romance of Moonstruck. So it's, it's part of what's interesting about studying Cage's career is how a lot of, a lot of his performances are like almost an attempt to re- rebel against what he had done previously. It's like he's always trying to run away from yeah. any attempt to pigeon him, pigeonhole his his work. Um, he's always he's always running away from what he's done before and trying to do something completely different. And that's one of the things. It's a very sort of important point that you raised there um, with Cage. Is that he is the de- um, someone I have described as. Th- the acting definition of never let them know your next move. Right. Um, because you you can't pigeonhole him because he is someone who um, very much refuses to be pigeonholed. You know, he could have made, maybe especially in the 80s, could have made maybe quite a comfortable filmography of being the unconventional heartthrob. Um, obviously, as you said, he... Um, and I found it very surprising to read how much he sort of... Um, resented um wanting to do moonstruck as well and this is at a time as you mentioned um from a vanity fair interview he said he wanted to create stories and a mythology around himself um i mean especially with moonstruck in mind as well and i think this is something i always sort of highlight that you go to the award nominated moonstruck very successful movie in the 80s and again could have led to similar films continuing that heart from nature but he's like no i need to get really weird now and do vampires kiss um in terms of that i suppose for lack of a better term um methodology of how cage selects his movies um how important would say like a moonstruck be to how he started selecting his movies going forward and do you think that sort of stems maybe again from growing up and trying to create this um, mythology around himself as well as someone who uh, sort of trying to stand out and even then still trying to step out of this couple of shadow perhaps. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting 
early in his career, he was frequently in conflict with his agent, Ed Lamato, um, because Ed Lamato was kind of this old school, seasoned Hollywood agent who really, you know, he wanted Cage to be in more mainstream, you know, bigger budgeted, well-paying roles. And Cage really rebelled against that whole philosophy. Cage wanted to do low budget films like Vampire's Kiss and later on Leaving Las Vegas, which was also a very low budget film. Um, and um, Ed Lamato was was always kind of pressuring him to do things like Moonstruck and to try to nudge Cage towards the mainstream a little bit. Um, there, there's this uh, there's this college humor video that came out a few years ago that satirizes the idea of being Nicolas Cage's agent. Have you have you seen this video? Um, y- yes. Um, yes. So yeah, yeah, very funny. Yeah, so the the um the joke of the joke in the video is that the agent is, keeps um fighting with Cage because the agent is like we've you know we've received a script for this movie called Diarrhea Bus and it's like the entire movie is set on a bus where a guy has diarrhea like this this sounds terrible you don't want to do this movie and Cage is like I'll do it like yes like put me in and the idea is that Cage is just like saying yes to the most uh, ludicrous and and just outlandish sounding scripts, and his agent like constantly has to argue with him. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously the video is is a um, is a dramatic you know exaggeration, but there's mm-hmm. there's some truth to the concept of the video. There, there's it's funny to like study Cage's early career and learn about like how much he had to argue with his agent to convince his agent to let him be in Vampire's Kiss um, or you know, you know, Cage, I think he he did this little cameo in a movie called Never on Tuesday, and he agreed to do it for no money just because, just as a favor to the producers. And like, that's the kind of thing that his agent did not want him to be doing. Um, you know, his agent initially was dismissive of Raising Arizona because it was a low budget movie from these young, you know, upstart filmmakers named Joel and Ethan Cohen, who at the time had kind of come out of nowhere. Um mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's interesting to hear about how there's this conflict in Cage's career between art and commerce. And I think that conflict is kind of personified um, in the relationship between Cage and his agent early on, Ed Lamato. Um, mm-hmm. Later on, later on, he uh, he ended up getting frustrated with Ed Lamato and he, around the time that he did Leaving Las Vegas, he fired Lamato and um, got a different agent who was able to get him roles in big action movies like like Face Off and Con Air, of course. Um, but yeah, his his methodology for choosing roles early in his career it's interesting because he he was always kind of he was always lashing out against what he had done before. Like after he did Moonstruck, he kind of went into this bewildering stretch of his career where for a few years he just refused to do any mainstream Hollywood movies and instead he did Vampire's Kiss he did this uh, Italian film Time to Kill which nobody ever mentions because it seems like barely anyone has seen that movie Um, but like that's that's the kind of it's this movie where he plays this Italian soldier who rapes an Ethiopian woman and believes that he's contracted syphilis Um, those are the kinds of movies that he was doing instead of like 
a follow in instead of like another rom-com to follow on the success of Moonstruck. And then um he's you know, late a few years later, he does a string of mainstream comedies like uh Honeymoon in Vegas and It Could Happen to You and um Trapped in Paradise, which is a pretty awful movie. So he you know, he he mm. went through this phase in the early nineties where he was trying to establish himself as this more palatable mainstream type of actor. He was sort of trying to be a Tom Hanks kind of everyman actor. Um, and it didn't really work. I mean, I would say Honeymoon in Vegas, he's, he's good in that movie. And that movie was certainly a bit of a minor success. But once again, he felt like as soon as he did these mainstream movies, he felt this need to rebel against that and to do something completely different. And he, you know, he got kind of fed up with, with the um, the lack of creative autonomy that he had when he was doing these more mainstream uh, types of comedies. And that, you know, that frustration and that um, desire to do something completely different is what motivated him to do a film like Leaving Las Vegas. Yeah, I still find it like, you know, listening to you, they're always so interesting where, again, it, you can have like a big success like of a national treasure or the award success of a uh a leaving las vegas but then the film after that is going to end up being something just completely different um which was yeah. always so interesting i think that's part of what's great about cage is that he never allows himself to get comfortable a hundred percent um like i think even in the more recent interviews that he conducts one thing that always uh, strikes me about him is that he i think for one he's very aware of um a form of perception around him uh, like an internet perception so to speak um and in another sense he is someone who um which i think is a very respectful sort of uh, outlook he has he doesn't consider himself a celebrity really he's he will always say oh no like i'm an actor i'm a student of the game first and foremost um and i find it always so interesting that he's still um very interested to learn very interested to push himself and even now he's saying more openly and openly that like i want to go back to the kind of independent movies that i was making when i started my career i want to work with smaller directors smaller teams and get back to that sort of thing now um so I think even now, in a way, he's still, um, in some senses, projecting um, sort of big Hollywood, um, even though, you know, I can't speak for everyone, even though some of us are still holding out hope for a National Treasure 3, whether or not that ever happens, um, I hope I'm here to see it. Um, but sort of talking about that perception of Cage and someone who is very much aware of how the internet perceives him, uh, you know, something he's channeled with more recent works like Dream Scenario. Um, what do you think it is, again, as someone who's dove into him so um, in depth, about this, uh, I guess, the, the, very much a memification of Cage? Uh, what is it do you think about him that, um, I think for one makes him such a fascinating topic of discussion and such an interesting figure. Um, and two, he's said in recent interviews, bringing up Dream Scenario again, 
Um, he said, I might have been the first actor who went through a kind of memification. Um, so really, what do you think it is that makes him a fascinating figure? And what do you think it is that has really, I don't know, drawn the internet to him in a way that no other actor has had that kind of attention that he has gone through in his life as well? I think part of what gets people fascinated in Cage, beyond the obvious of you know his brilliant and wide-ranging body of work, but as a public figure, he seems to live his daily life like he is living inside of a Nicolas Cage movie. <laughs> I mean, the there's just this blurring, there's this blurring of reality between what's real and what's what's fictional. You know what I mean? He mm-hmm. I mean he he's a he's a truly eccentric and flamboyant celebrity. Um even you know, even early on in his career, researching this book, I learned about how eccentric he was as a young actor in his 20s he was obsessed with with fish he had an aquarium in his apartment and he would invite journalists to his apartment to admire his aquarium where he he had like a little shark swimming around he had a pet octopus um he had a pet monkfish (laughs) he was obsessed with pet fish and and he wanted you know journalists to notice how how wacky he was to like live in a home that is full of a pet, you know, <laughs> that is, that is uh, filled with pet sharks. Um, sure. And then, you know, later on, as he became one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood, as he started commanding like 12 to $20 million of a movie, um, of course he began buying sports cars and, and castles, you know, at one point he owned somewhere between 10 and 15, like mansions and castles all around Europe and Germany. And he owned a private Island. Um, so he, he's, he's lived a very flamboyant over the top lifestyle. That is, I think commensurate with his over the top performances in, in movies. Um, and, you know, there are these wacky stories that kind of go viral in the media. Like, you know, he, he bought, a dinosaur skull from Mongolia. And then he had to return it because he found out that it, it had been stolen. Um, you know, I remember, I remember when I was in college and I was, you know, just starting to become obsessed with Nicolas Cage. There was, there was a story that kind of went viral. That was about how he, he woke up in the middle of the night and there was a naked man in his bedroom who was eating a fudgesicle, someone who had broken into his house yeah. and was just eating a fudgesicle, fudgesicle in the nude. Um, and I was reminded of the story when I saw Dream Scenario. I don't, I don't know if you've seen it yet, but there is a scene, there is a scene in Dream Scenario where Cage's character wakes up in the middle of the night and there is an intruder in his house who enters his bedroom. And I thought of that mm-hmm. and I, I thought of how Dream Scenario kind of plays with this idea of what it means to be a celebrity who has like captured the viral, the viral focus of the internet. And and perhaps that's why the performance, perhaps that's why the character kind of spoke to Cage. Um, but I think that's part of what fascinates the public about Nicolas Cage is that his, his own life seems to mirror the eccentricity of his characters and of his movies. And he, he's, he's a guy who lives a larger than life, a, a larger than life um, kind of lifestyle and not, you know, nothing about him is dull or plain. Um, 
but you know then then there's the performances themselves there's the bugged out facial expressions in vampire's kiss and mm-hmm. the you know the screaming and yelling in in the wicker man or in deadfall Th- these um these meltdowns and freakouts that he's done in movies they really lend themselves to memes um yeah and, and as well as to internet supercuts i'm sure you've seen the famous um youtube supercut nicholas cage losing his shit where it's just like <laughs> spliced together scenes of cage freaking out and screaming his head off and it's all um pieced together and set against the theme music from Re- requiem for a dream um so his performances really lend itself to this like decontextualization and the internet is all about decontextualization. I mean, like anything, you know, you can splice together anything on YouTube and make it go viral and Cage's performances have really been subjected to that. Um, And, you know, it's interesting because on one hand, I think this memification has certainly drawn more attention to Cage and it's certainly brought more attention to Vampire's Kiss, which, um, of all of his movies, I think that's the movie that has been most uh, memeified by the internet era. Um, but it's also been something that Cage has been, um, he's been very sensitive to it. And I know that he has spoke about in interviews, the fact that he resents the fact that these memes and these YouTube supercuts, they kind of, they take his performances out of context and they, I think it kind of reduces his work to a joke. I mean, when you watch that YouTube supercut, um, you know, you're seeing, you're seeing these great scenes of cage characters screaming and shouting and, and uh, freaking the hell out. But what you don't see is like the dramatic trajectory of like what actually brought this character to this emotional state. And that's something that cage has been very frustrated by. Um, I actually, I interviewed Cage in 2015 before I wrote this book when I was working at Newsweek. Um, and I, I think I tell, I think I tell the story in in the introduction of my book where, um, I interviewed him. He was promoting a movie called Pay the Ghost. Um, this, this was in 2015, which I think was kind of like right around the time that, these memes and you know novelty items like throw pillows with cage's face on it had really kind of captured the imagination of the internet um and so i made a point of asking cage like what do you make of all these memes and um he gave me a pretty level-headed answer he he said i'm not entirely sure oh he was talking about the wicker man he said I'm not entirely sure the movie deserved that much attention, good or bad. It's an ironic experience for people. I don't think people are aware the movie was designed to be a bit of a black comedy. Um, And I asked him, do you think it's benefited your career that people love to talk about you online? And Cage said, quote, it's sort of completely out of my reference point for anything that has happened in my career. I don't even know how to process it. So I try not to think too much about it. So that that was his yeah. response to to all these memes and jokes. Um, but what happened was um, after the interview had concluded, after I got off the phone with him, um, I received a call from the publicist who had arranged the interview. And th- this was not Nicolas Cage's personal publicist. Rather, it was the publicist who had been hired to do PR for this film, who, who was working with him 
to do PR for the film he was promoting for like a pretty limited press run. Um, So she called me up and she was like, you know, we're not happy with this question you asked Mr. Cage about the memes. Like, can you please spike that from the interview? You know, we didn't know that you were going to be asking him about that. Um, And I was, I was really taken aback because it's, I did not agree to any like preconditions about what I was permitted to ask him. And the publicist was like, oh, like, you know, this question has nothing to do with his movie that he's promoting. Like, we don't really want that in the interview. Can you remove that from the interview? Um, And I stood my ground and I I said, you know, it's a fair question. I didn't agree to any, you know, I didn't agree to any restrictions on what I was or wasn't allowed to ask Mr. Cage. And, you know, I think the question is fair game. Um, And, you know, I remember I had to like get my editor on the phone to back me up because the publicist was getting kind of, um, yeah, she was getting kind of frustrated. She really wanted me to spike that question from the interview. Um, I don't know if Cage himself had asked her to do this or, or if she had simply been like informed by his representatives that he's sensitive to the question of, of internet memes, but that that was really eye-opening because that was how I realized that Cage was very sensitive to people treating him as an internet joke. And he, he didn't really want to be asked about it. And, and, you know, to the point that his representatives wanted me to spike this question from the interview, which I refused to do because I, I believed yeah. and continue to believe that it, it's a legitimate question. And yeah, um, yeah. it certainly made the interview better. Um, so my editor kind of defended me and, and backed me up um, in terms of including including that question in the piece. Um, but at that time, I think Cage was was very sensitive and frustrated about how the internet had reduced his work to a joke. Um, I think over time, in the years since then, he has he's learned to embrace it a little bit. And I think particularly his performance in The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. I mean, that movie kind of leans into the memification of Cage. And I, I think his performance Absolutely. in that movie, he's kind of like leaning into that and being a good sport about it. And I think there's a bit of a Faustian bargain there because my understanding is that the salary that he was paid for that movie was enough money to enable him to dig himself out of the debt that he's been in for many years. And that movie kind of um, solved his woes with, real estate debts with with real estate debt and with the irs so mm-hmm. i think it's kind of like a faustian bargain that in order to in order to get rid of his debt he kind of had to um lean into this memification of his acting yeah in order to defeat him he had to become him nicholas cage um, yeah i mean certainly on the, on the point of that interview you had with cage as well um, and something I'd be, be curious to know, I suppose, um, of your journey from the beginning of the book to the uh, end of the book and everything in between, and I suppose especially with that interview in mind as well, were there any, um, I suppose, interviews, conversations you had, revelations you may have chanced upon in particular uh, that maybe changed or challenged any ideas you yourself had about Cage. Um, I suppose, was there an impression and understanding you had of him before the book? And did that change by the time, you know, the final draft was done? 
Yeah. Um, it was, it was, it was certainly the interview that I did with his brother, Christopher Coppola was one of the most revealing and Mm -hmm. revelatory interviews that I did for this book. Um, it was interesting to learn about cage had a very difficult and traumatic childhood. Um, not not just I you know I mentioned that his father was emotionally quite cold and disapproving of his aspirations, but also mm-hmm. one thing I one thing we haven't talked about during this conversation is that his mother, his mother was very mentally ill throughout much of his childhood, and she, yeah. um, I, I believe she had schizophrenia, and she was institutionalized for years, and this was a very traumatic thing that Cage lived with as a kid. Um, of course, and. Um, when I spoke with with his brother Christopher, um, you know, Christopher talked about how um, it was a very difficult childhood, and and our mother was very ill, and and that was that had a profound effect on on all of us. Um, and so, researching the book, it was interesting to learn about how that how Cage's childhood um, was channeled into some of his great performances. Um, and I want to I want to pull up the quote that I have from yeah. from Christopher. Um, let me find it. So Cage himself has has credited his mother as an inspiration, and and he once mm-hmm. told the New York Times um, she's been a huge inspiration in my work because she just naturally was kind of surreal. And um, his brother Christopher Coppola told me that. Um, he believes that Cage was actually drawing on his his mother, drawing on things that he had witnessed as a child watching his mother go through this. Um, quote, I think he I think anything he brings when he's trying to understand his existence and embrace it and his morality. And maybe and you can't hide from it when he feels that I think that's when he brings in his mom. Um, so his, particularly his performance in Vampire's Kiss, he was channeling certainly certain things that he had witnessed in his mom when he was a child. Um, I, you know, perhaps also his performance in Matchstick Men, when he he's playing a man who is struggling with severe obsessive compulsive disorder, you mm-hmm. know, and then he's also drawing on this influence from his dad and and things that his dad has had shown him or taught him when he was a kid, um, you know, Nosferatu and and Metropolis and the way he's drawing on these old movies and Vampire's Kiss and Moonstruck and, um, and uh, perhaps even uh, Wild at Heart, you know, it, it was interesting to learn about what a profound impact his childhood and his upbringing and his parents had on his acting career. That's something that I wasn't totally aware of before I began work on the book. Yeah. It's, um, you know, he can't sort of talk about um, the impact of his father without the impact of his mother as well. Uh, mother who spent a lot of time uh, sort of dealing with um, uh, illnesses and, you know, Cage was there sort of witnessing the whole thing. Um, and on on the back of that, you talk about some um, important influences Cage took with um, as he was sort of growing up and... Um, especially with racing with the moon when he was working quite directly with Sean Penn. Um, he took a lot of influence from uh, Sean Penn in regards to method acting. And obviously his mother, Joy Vogelsang, being a very important influence, especially when it became to 
um, I suppose a lot more emotionally resonant characters as well. And, you know, combined with that, we talk about how easy it is to take something like Nicolas Cage losing his shit and just see the screaming and not see the build-up, the context behind it. And one of the benefits of a podcast like this is when I've gone into his entire filmography is knowing that it's never really the case that he just screams for the sake of screaming. It's not like he demands in his contract, I need a scream clause. Uh, you need to let me just lose my shit. There's always, for lack of a better term here, a method to the madness, so to speak. Yeah, and a lot of his performances have these emotional underpinnings that that the casual viewer might not be aware of. I mean, I've spoken mm-hmm. about how in his performances in Vampire's Kiss and, in, and as well as in Birdie, where that film has yeah. a real theme of mental illness and hospitalization, he's definitely exercising some of his demons from what he went through with his mother. But then in Moonstruck, what I didn't know until beginning research for this book, he he was going through a breakup when he filmed Moonstruck. He had recently separated from his girlfriend, Jenny Wright, who he, who he was dating mm-hmm. for a few years in his 20s. Um, and he, he in interviews, he talked about how um, in, in the famous scene where he's, he's uh, trying to convince Cher to come up to his bed and he's saying, you know, love isn't perfect. The stars are perfect. The, the moon is perfect. You know, love, you know, we're here to love the wrong people and die. When, when he was doing that passionate soliloquy, he was kind of channeling his own heartbreak and he was imagining that he was speaking to his ex-girlfriend and he he imagined that his ex-girlfriend would be watching the film and and would be turned on by seeing, you know, her ex-boyfriend looking so handsome in a tuxedo seducing Cher and he fantasi- <laughs> he fantasized about his performance kind of winning over his ex and redeeming this relationship that had ended. Um so he he's drawing on these personal emotions and he's kind of channeling his personal heartbreak in order to make his performance even better. Um, when he did leaving Las Vegas, that's, that's another, that's another performance where he was channeling some of his own private, um, private heartbreak. Um, mm-hmm. He obviously, you know, the character who he's playing in that film has destroyed his life with his drinking and, and, you know, his, he's lost his job. He's lost his marriage. Um, yeah. And, um, in the film, they never they never explicitly mention the the fact that the character has a son who he's no longer who he's no longer uh, able to raise. But there there is this one scene where you see a family photo of Ben Sanderson with a wife and child, and that's like the one little hint that maybe the character had a son, but he lost. You know, he his son is no longer in his life because of his alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the time that Cage filmed Leaving Las Vegas, he he was a single parent. He um he had he had a young son who he had fathered with his ex girlfriend Christina Fulton, but um he wasn't living with his son, and I think he he had a lot of angst about the fact that he he was a single parent and he wasn't able to um raise his son in in the way that he wanted to. I, I don't know. There there was some real heartbreak and angst there, and um. In interviews, he talked about how he felt like the emotional key to his performance in Leaving Las Vegas is that this guy who he's portraying, Ben Sanderson, you know, he's heartbroken because 
he he has a son and he's not able to see his kid and that's yeah. that's kind of the trigger for how he became so suicidal and decided to just destroy his life is because he's heartbroken that his marriage and his family um is destroyed and and cage really cage really connected with that theme of like a broken family and and um parental heartbreak and i think he really channeled his own angst into that performance yeah a thousand percent i think it's often the time where his performances and the movies he selects as well um i think as he's quite more openly said for something like pig in recent years where it's something as he progresses in his life he wants um i guess to find roles where he feels that he can uh bring something of himself to the role as well and yeah. experience he's he's actually had um so it certainly rings true that especially with something like moonstruck you know very much maybe he was using this as a way to sort of call out to an ex-girlfriend and and i think he's done that in more recent films as well i remember i I remember reading an interview around the time that mandy came out where he talked about how when he filmed mandy he was going through a divorce he he was dealing with um the end of I, th- I believe it's his third marriage and so the, those scenes in mandy where he's in the bathroom and he's just like screaming at himself in the mirror i believe yeah, yeah. i believe his angst and his the intensity that he brings to his performance in mandy was at least somewhat um motivated by all of his like heartbreak over his the divorce that he was going through when he made that movie yeah it's it's interesting sort of knowing the i guess the, the real life context that sort of he puts into these characters as well and it hits on a whole different level um and you know even when the angst is sort of channeled so perfectly something i've often said on the podcast as well is um how often it takes a good director who knows how to use to use cage to get those kind of performances as well um you know cage not so much that he could be an overpowering presence but as you sort of find out he always has a lot of ideas he's very prepared he does not come to a set unprepared he knows the script word for word he knows what to do he knows where to hit his marks um obviously that didn't quite work out so much with the coen brothers on raising arizona because they're you know frame by frame planned out but then on the flip side of that you have um like a wild at heart with david lynch where it's a pairing that just really worked um so again i'll be curious for your take on this um and i suppose especially with the wild in heart in mind as well um you know, do, do you sort of think as well that it, that it takes a certain kind of director to get those performances from Cage and with Wild at Heart where you've got kind of two, I guess again, for lack of a better term, two mavericks of their respective crafts sort of coming together. Um, you know, what, what was it about the pairing of Cage and Lynch that I suppose in a way gave us a, a truer reflection of Cage? Yeah. David, you know, David Lynch over the years, he's he's referred to Cage as the jazz musician of actors. And <laughs> I asked him, what do you mean by that? And I, I Lynch told me, the thing is, he can riff on a thing. He can get into it and keep going. He can keep going. And 
I think that really speaks to Cage's improvisational spirit as an actor, the way that he he loves to bring his own ideas to a movie. And he, yeah. you know, he likes to really, um, he likes to bring his own ideas to a character. And he, I think he really, he really works well with directors who are willing to hear him out and listen to some of his wackier ideas about what he thinks the character should do or say, um, you know, there, there's like there's a story about how when he was filming The Rock, for some reason Cage was completely insistent that he wanted to insert the phrase Zeus's butthole into the screenplay of The Rock. <laughs> it was not in the script. Like the, that was not supposed to be in the movie. But Cage was like completely insistent that he wanted to say Zeus's butthole, and he, can, he somehow he talked Michael Bay into it. And so if you watch The Rock, there it's the it's one of my favorite Cage line readings where he's like, how in the name of Zeus's butthole did you break out of Alcatraz? Um, <laughs> and um, that that's, you know, that's what I love about Cage is that he, he's always coming to movies with his own wacky ideas. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't work. But I, I think his collaboration with David Lynch was so fruitful and so incendiary incendiary because Lynch was totally willing to um to go along with Cage's ideas and to hear him out um you know the the famous snakeskin jacket that that Cage wears in Wild at Heart yes. as a symbol of my freedom and in, in, my freedom and individuality um that was Cage's own jacket like he he bought that jacket at a thrift shop in 1989, like right before he shot Wild at Heart. And he just, he brought it to rehearsal. And my David Lynch just said like, that's a sailor jacket. You should wear it in the film. And David Lynch just wrote that jacket into the screenplay. Um, so that, you know, that that's an example of how Lynch was just totally willing to just um, mm-hmm. bring new ideas into the film. Like long after, like even while the film was already in production, um, I, I believe that Cage singing Elvis Presley songs was not in the original draft of the screenplay. And that's just something yeah. that's something that Cage and Lynch hatched up themselves when they were uh, working on the film. Um, so Cage, Cage really thrives with directors who are willing to um, willing to indulge some of his more eccentric ideas. But he also thrives with directors who are willing to hear him out and sometimes say no. Um, for instance, mm-hmm. Mike Figgis, the the writer-director of Leaving Las Vegas. Um, Mike Figgis told me a story about how um, during the early production of Leaving Las Vegas, Cage approached him and he said, I want, I have an idea. I want to be drunk during this entire movie. I just want, I want to be drunk during every scene because the character is drunk and I should, I should just be completely shit-faced. And, um, Mike yeah. Figgis said, absolutely not, categorically not. Like that, that, that is, that's just not going to work. Like we, we need you to be on time. We need you to know your lines. Like th- there's no way that you can be drunk. And, um, <laughs> and Cage, Cage listened to him and Cage respected his, his wishes. Um, but Cage did end up, um, he did show up drunk to one scene in Leaving Las Vegas. And, and that is the scene where his, where he, um, has a meltdown in the casino and he he throws the whole blackjack table over. 
Um, according to Mike Figgis, Cage was completely drunk off his gourd during that scene. And uh, the director, Figgis, was very frustrated because he, did, he didn't know that Cage would be showing up drunk. But it's a great scene and it yeah. works. And, you know, Figgis eventually came to forgive Cage because it, it does work in the context of the movie. Um, but Mike Figgis said something to me that I found really interesting. And I, I want to quote it from the book. Please, yeah. Uh, okay, I found it. Mike Figgis, he told me, I wasn't about to be directed by an actor. So he came, he, Cage came to it with the potential for all kinds of things. Quote, I want to do the whole film drunk. No, you're not. I want to masturbate at the end of the film. No, you're not. And that's okay. <laughs> I think he respected the fact that I was a tough guy. With a lot of actors that I've worked with, that's the only way. And then they respect you for that. And you get an even better performance because it's not a bunch of tricks. It's not a bunch of what a zappy, bizarre moment. It has consistency. And I think that's why he got respect because he got all the way through a movie very consistent with that character. Yeah, it's uh, it's always an interesting, um, I don't know, maybe a very Cage fan thing to do where you sort of watch a film and you just sort of think to yourself, right, of all Cage's dialogue, what what parts of it were definitely not in the script? Yeah, and there uh, are a lot of lines in Leaving Las Vegas that weren't in the script. Like when Elizabeth Shue says, um, she, she says, how are you feeling? And he says, like the cling cling king of the rim ram room. Um, that, you know, that was Cage's idea. He brought that to the film. Um, and Mike Figgis, you know, Mike Figgis was willing to let Cage do these kind of wacky improvisations and and insert some of these silly lines into the script. Um, but Figgis was also willing to put his foot down when Cage had some outlandish ideas. Like, I, I want to be drunk during the entire shoot. Figgis was willing to say no to that. And I think, I think it was fascinating to learn about the collaboration between Nicolas Cage and Mike Figgis. And I think part of why there was such a fruitful and successful collaboration there is because Mike Figgis, he was willing to indulge some of Cage's ideas. He was willing, he was certainly willing to hear Cage out and let him insert some of his own ideas into the script, but he was also willing to assert his authority as the director of the film and yeah. say no to things that probably wouldn't have worked or may have taken the film in a goofy or over the top direction. And I think that that creative push and pull is part of what, what makes his performance in leaving Las Vegas so successful. Yeah, definitely. There's definitely. a balance, you know, there's this creative balance there where mm -hmm. Cage certainly made the character his own and he certainly poured his heart and soul into it. But he didn't. He didn't turn the movie into a joke. The way I would argue, he mm. kind of did with Deadfall. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I don't know if that's just a lesson with just don't work with family members, um, just because it may get a little too lenient. Um, but certainly in this period of time as well, you know, it's it's um, you know not to try and give the impression that he only either did these outlandish performances or he did these romantic movies that he was uh let you rebel against as well um you have a chapter towards the end of the book dedicated to um the sunshine trilogy honeymoon in vegas guarding tests and it could happen to you i've personally um always been a really big advocate of cage 
in comedies. I think it's something he does really well that he doesn't get enough credit for. Um, one I of agree. My pers- yeah, I think one of my personal favorites is The Weatherman, um, which I think he's um, you know very much not talked about enough. But um, I think in that period of the 90s, uh, from around 92 to 94, um, would you said him... I guess not necessarily discovering comedy, but leaning more into that and flexing that muscle. Um, how important was that for him sort of moving forward as well? Yeah. Um, it's it's odd to write about. It was very odd to write about that whole era of his career, the Sunshine Trilogy, um, because it's, you know, that's an era where he was he was trying to be normal. Like he was trying to be mm-hmm. a more of a like Tom Hanks-esque um, every man non-threatening type of leading man character. Um, and he, he did these pretty mainstream um, family friendly movies. Like it could happen to you and guarding tests, um, which are films that to be honest with you, I, w- I had not seen those films before I began work on this book. And um, it's kind of jarring to see cage play such a like down to earth um you know, normal average type of character. It's like, it's jarring to see him try and play against type as a normal guy. Um, So it's, I think, you know, that era of his career definitely uh, demonstrates what I was saying earlier about how he's always trying to rebel against what he's done before. He, you know, he got frustrated with the fact that people had pigeonholed him as being, you know, a dark tormented weirdo. And he, wanted to prove that he could do something a little bit brighter, a little more comedic. And and that was what drew him to films like uh, Honeymoon in Vegas. Um, but at the same time, I think, I believe that he was also motivated by uh, financial considerations. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he, he, he started buying these fancy houses um, in the late 80s, early 90s, that was around the time that he bought his mansion in the Hollywood Hills. Um, and he actually admitted in, in a several interviews, he admitted that part of why he started doing more mainstream movies and, and working with the big studios is because he he had gotten in over his head financially. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was really quite revealing because I think I think it's become common knowledge that um in recent years, like during the 2010s, the reason why he was pumping out so many bad movies in quick succession is because he needed to work constantly to pay off his IRS debt. Um, But I had no idea that he had actually done movies like uh, Firebirds and um, Trapped in Paradise and Guarding Tess much earlier in his career. And he was at least somewhat motivated by um, the fact that he needed money to pay off his house. Um, so I think that's kind of revealing the fact that his his big spending and his uh, financial woes have been conflicting with his creative decisions as early as like 1990, 1991. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it's, you know, it's also, it's interesting to see this, this phase of his career in the early 90s where, you know, he hadn't quite figured out who he wanted to be creatively. He was still kind of like figuring out what kind of movies he would excel in. And so he dabbled in romantic comedy with Honeymoon in Vegas and It Could Happen to You. And, you know, those movies are fine, but they weren't 
it's not really you know what you think of when you think of Nicolas Cage. They they weren't really, um, they weren't really him. They were a little too bright, a little too family friendly for Cage. And mm-hmm. then he was dabbling in um, erotic drama with Zondali, which is a movie that I personally am fascinated by. And I devoted a whole section of this book to talking about Zandali. But that that <laughs> movie, um, probably the horniest, most erotic movie that Cage has ever done. Um, he yeah, really, yeah. you know, he really goes deep into these sex scenes. Um, and his character is so deranged and and sinister and sexually charged um i have a deep love for zandali but that you know that movie bombed and that wasn't really him either and you know then he did deadfall but you know that movie kind of became a huge bomb and then uh he did some really really bad comedies like trapped in paradise but he was really frustrated with that movie as well and he was really unhappy during that shoot so there's this period um, in the early 90s where he was kind of dabbling and jumping from genre to genre and trying to figure out like what he wanted to do and, and what he would really excel at. And so it's interesting to write about this phase where he was kind of struggling to find his voice as an actor. And, you know, he was kind of um, kind of, you know, he seemed kind of unsure of himself creatively. And then when he did leaving Las Vegas, it was like this lightning, this lightning bolt of inspiration um, where it was like, he, he finally found this amazing performance that he could pour his whole heart into. And, um, you know, remarkably, you know, it was a low budget movie. Nobody was expecting it to be this big Oscar movie. And of course that was the movie that led to his Academy Award. So it's this huge moment of vindication of and triumph for Cage. And that became, of course, the climax of my book where he like he won his Oscar and he felt so vindicated because everyone who had dismissed him and written him off as a joke, like they could no longer write off Nicolas Cage as a joke. No, and we will not stand for any kind of Cage erasure uh, in this right. lifetime or podcast. And then that, of course, and then that led directly into his, his sudden... Um, his sudden breakout as this action movie star with he, you know, he did the rock con air face off back to back and bam, all of a sudden he's one of the biggest and most highest paid actors in Hollywood. And what a run it was, what a trilogy it was as well. Right. Um, so you bring it up sort of Zanderly there as well. And, um, also in the book, you, um, I think very importantly touch on an oft forgotten film in the form of red rock West, um, what would be some movies, I mean, especially from this early, earlier period, because you also mentioned there, um, Firebirds, very much a Top Gun clone, but with Nicolas Cage as an arrogant helicopter pilot screaming things like, I am the greatest, I am the greatest. Um, what do you think are some movies from this period, uh, I guess the pre-Leaving Las Vegas period, um, that you don't feel get talked enough about? Red Rock, you mentioned Red Rock West. Um, that's a phenomenal film. Um, it's, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's a much quieter, more subdued Cage performance. Um, you know, it's, it's def- his work in that movie is very subtle, but it's a great film. It's kind of a neo-noir Western hybrid, and he he gets a chance to perform opposite Dennis Hopper in one of Hopper's most uh, sinister roles. Um, I love I love that movie, and I'm 
I'm continually dismayed that people don't mention it or talk about it more often. Um, but I think I think that's partially because the film is not available on streaming. So it's, it's been kind of left behind by the whole streaming apparatus. Um, and then Zondali, um, I, I wouldn't call Zondali a great movie, but it is a cage performance that has to be seen to believe. I mean, he <laughs> can confirm. Yes. He, I mean, he channels this very dark, almost violent sexuality in that movie. And I think it's unlike anything he's done in any other movie. Um, and the film itself is just like a fascinating historic artifact of the erotic thriller boom of the late eighties and early nineties. Um, yeah. I, the more, the after I watched Zondali for the first time, I knew that I needed to just dig deep into that movie because it's it's <laughs> so depraved and erotic and fascinating. And um, there, you know, there there are a lot of stories in the book about the um, tumultuous, depraved shooting of Zondali. Um, another movie that doesn't get mentioned much is Rumblefish. Uh, Rumblefish was, yeah, yeah. yeah. R- Rumblefish was one of his very first roles it was the first time that he worked with his uncle francis ford coppola um and interestingly rumblefish is a film that is very it's creatively indebted to these german expressionist films of the 1920s which had a profound impact on cage and they also had a profound impact on francis ford coppola which makes sense because francis ford coppola was introduced to these films by his older brother, uh, Cage's father, August Coppola. Um, I think Rumblefish is is a very good film. Um, Cage was very young. I think he was 18 when that movie was filmed and it was one of his first dramatic roles. Um, But that's a film that gets kind of uh, forgotten, both in the context of Cage's career as well as in the context of Francis Ford Coppola's career. I think it's quite an underrated film. Yeah, agreed and seconded on that one as well. Um, and on the inverse of that question, um, so my sort of final question for you, um, as we sort of start bringing this uh, delightful conversation, this interview to an end, in the book you cite 1987 as perhaps being the most significant year of Cage's career with Raising Arizona and Moonstruck. Um of the period you cover in the book, what, in your opinion, would be, say, the three most important movies of this span? So perhaps these are the uh, the absolute cage movies to watch, to understand him in this time, maybe even to understand him going forward. Uh, but what are the three that you would say are, are the, the, the peak, the most important ones there? That's it. Well, that's a tough question. Um, I would say, well, Valley Girl was pivotal because that is the movie that made him a star virtually overnight. So if Mm -hmm. Valley Girl, if Valley Girl hadn't happened, you know, I'm not sure that we would be sitting here today talking about Nicolas Cage. That movie jumpstarted his career. Um, And then um, Vampire's Kiss, certainly. Vampire's Kiss was, he, he's described Vampire's Kiss as being his laboratory because that mm-hmm. was his opportunity to explore this more surrealistic, expressionistic mode of acting, which became kind of a test run for 
I, you know, approaches to acting that he later put to use in big studio films like Face Off and and um, Con Air. So Vampire's Kiss was he. That's pivotal. That was his the moment where he really um, found his creative voice and veered into this more surrealistic direction. Um, and then Leaving Las Vegas. Leaving Las Vegas was pivotal um, in terms of getting Hollywood to take him seriously as an actor. I think um, Leaving Las Vegas was where he really proved that he is a great actor. Um, he is capable of taking on um, emotionally resonant, dramatic roles. And um, yeah, that, that, that was a pivotal moment of creative vindication for Cage. So Valley Girl, uh, Vampire's Kiss, Leaving Las Vegas are all quite pivotal films um, for, for this book. Wonderful stuff. So Valley, Vampire, Vegas, the three V's. Yes. Um, and I th- I think... And I, I feel think... terrible for not mentioning Raising Arizona, which might be my personal favorite Cage movie. That's certainly a pivotal a pivotal moment as well for him. A hundred percent. And I think if, I, if this uh, conversation was flipped, I think I'd be selecting the same three movies with honorable mention to raising Arizona as well, by all accounts. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, certainly with that said, it was sort of left for me to say at this stage, um, Zach Schoenfeld, thank you so much for taking the time. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, it's been a pleasure and a delight to have you on the podcast, to have this conversation again. Congrats on the book. It is a fantastic read um, for the cage fan. It is Perhaps the arguably the most important cage text that we have out there, uh, the depth, the insight, um, the humor, I think, as I've tweeted about before, and I shall tweet again, uh, to which this book goes into, uh, genuinely incredible. Um, not paid to say that. Uh, that this, um, you know, there's no one with a, a gun to my head making me say these words. Um, a huge, huge recommendation from me. Um, but Zach, from me... Um, just left to sort of ask uh, for the listeners, where can you be found online and all that good business? And where is your book available as well? Uh, I can be found um, Twitter, Instagram, um, Letterboxd. Uh, you know, I, I frequently uh, log what I'm watching on Letterboxd. Um, and my book, so the book is out now in the US. It will be published in the UK on January 30th. Um, it's available from um, all the usual places, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, you could purchase it directly from the Oxford University Press website. Um, Oxford is, is the publisher of the book. Um, and I, I also want to encourage readers to uh, consider buying it from your local bookshop. Um, if, if your bookshop doesn't stock it, you can place a special order. I, I, I want to support all the local stores out there. Um, yes, as mentioned, the book is called How Coppola Became Cage, and it will be published in the UK uh, January 30th. Amazing stuff. So all links in the description as per usual. And of course, go support your local bookstore as well. Uh, support Zach, support your local bookstore. It's a fantastic read. You will not regret picking this one up. And with that said, uh, we come to the end of this uh, wonderful conversation. Thank you again, Zach, for your time. Thank you for having me. This, w- this was an honor. You, you are t- far too kind. You are far too kind. Um, but dear listener, we will catch you next time. But until then, as ever and always, 
Keep on, keep on caging. It's all you have to do. Thank you, take care, and goodbye. And so there you have it, my conversation, my interview with Zach Schoenfeld. So massive thank you again to Zach for taking the time out of his schedule to speak to me. A delightful conversation, pleasure to have him aboard the journey to true Cage Nirvana. And once again, if you're listening in the US, the book is already out across the pond over there, and the book releases in the UK on January 30th, 2024. So check it out. Support Zach, support your local bookstore, and be a pal. Um, so with that said, we come to the end of this week's episode. If you've enjoyed the episode and uh, you want to get in touch or anything like that, you're more than welcome to. You can find me on all the usual social medias. I'm on Instagram, at cage underscore podcast, cageragepod on TikTok, and cageragepod on Instagram as well. All the links down in the description. Um, if you want to help support the podcast, you can give it a like, a follow, a share and all the social medias. If you're on Spotify and Apple, give it a little uh, five stars if you think it's worthy of that. It's very helpful. It uh, helps the podcast grow, helps more people get on the journey to True Occasion of Honor. And just takes a few clicks, a few seconds is massively beneficial and helpful to your boy as well. And let's get this year off to the good start it needs. Uh, again, as I said at the top of the episode, we're just waiting on the home release of Dream Scenario. And then a full review, an episode on Dream Scenario will be coming in due course. At the point of recording, we've had a few teaser trailers for what we believe is Long Legs as well. A uh, potentially very creepy horror film of Nicolas Cage coming out later this year. Very, very exciting. Um, and obviously, by the time this comes out, Nicolas Cage was you know, nominated for a Golden Globe. For dream scenario as well you boys back in the conversation uh lost out to paul shimati for the holdovers so if he was going to lose out to anyone but it's not the winning it's the taking part that counts it's not the destination it's the journey and that's um you know part of what the true cage nirvana experience is all about as well we're pretty much caught up with cage as you well know we'll have some more cage rage revisited coming out we do have an episode on raising arizona coming out and uh, some previous podcast guests the podcast that wouldn't die join me for that one so keep an eye out for that that was a great conversation very very funny uh can't wait for you all to hear that and if you enjoy notable actors and you enjoy these sweet dulcet tones you can also find me over at getting the foe you a dedicated willem defoe podcast along with fellow cage acolyte petros but we've uh, concluded our second season in the back end of 2023 and we are working hard away on season three as well. So check out Getting the Foe You. All hands on deck. Very, very busy. But with that said, let's wrap things up. So lots to look forward to in the new year. Thanks for being a part of it. We'll see you soon. Take care of yourselves. And until then, ta-ta for now. Yeah!